You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And today we have Lon Deal and Scott Roosh from Hunting Lodge to talk to us. Hi, Lon. Hello there. And hey, Scott. Hello. So thankful to have you guys chatting with us and really excited about the 40th anniversary of Hunting Lodge, the reissue of Harrington Ballroom, along with Exhumed and Reanimated. Just cool stuff all around and been kind of soaking up the Hunting Lodge lately with all this activity. So I guess, you know, we always kind of start at the beginning. So Hunting Lodge formed in 82, 81. And before that, you guys were involved in some other bands. Let's let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, 82. Uh, yeah, I was in bands uh, like a. I was in a band called Hate Gray prior to Hunting Lodge. Um, and then prior to that, I, when I was going to school at uh, CMU, Central Michigan University, I was in a band kind of a a goofy uh improvised uh band with some horns and the beatbox and you know little Artie and Scott before right before I mean I was in some high school you know punk rock type of stuff and then uh, right before Hunting Lodge I was doing a project called Screw Machine and uh super DIY <clears throat> um minimal super crude um sounds and um just you know noise by any means necessary just whatever i had laying around i could you know make some sounds with and then i made some tapes uh tried to sell them and uh, i trade actually traded a few and then um and uh tried to peddle them at uh, full moon records so that's where i met lon i think the most interesting thing about that band though was uh you you had taken a mic and put it down your sump pump. It wasn't that the, to get the, uh, our well house. We had a well house. Oh yes. (laughs) That just made this insane. This such a great, just a mechanical chug, a chug, a wheezing kind of, you know, cycle that you just heard all the time living, you know, uh, where, you know, the house I lived and, uh, I thought it's perfect. I'm going to just, I didn't have a microphone. I had like one of those radio shack, um, you know, cassette recorders and I just put a rope on it and <laughs> dropped it down in the uh, hole. <laughs> awesome. Wow. That's amazing. And this is, you guys were in Port Huron at the time, correct? Yeah. Yes. Port Huron, yeah, I, Michigan. I had, just, I had just moved to Port Huron uh, and I was working in a record store when I met Scott. And this is the Full Moon Records that you referenced? It is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So for people not familiar with the geography of Michigan. When you think of Michigan, you think of Detroit. You can also think of Ann Arbor. It's rare that people think of Port Huron other than thinking of Hunting Lodge. So can you give people a little bit of background of where Port Huron is and why you guys were very unique in in starting something like what you guys are doing in a place like Port Huron? I don't think we were unique for that town. They, I, Port Huron was, uh, was way ahead of the game when I, it made me move there. Um, great record store and uh, a great band uh, called Problem. They later partly became Hey Gray. I, I joined the band, but uh, uh, they were they're amazing. And now that uh, Knox Mitchell, uh, Easy Listening, has uh, put out a, uh, 
uh, CD of it. Everyone can hear it. I think it's, uh, I think it holds up pretty well. Um, but so, yeah, I was, I came there simply because of the band and because of the record store being so great. You know, another thing too is like somewhat of a history on Port Huron, on the North end of town, they had this place called the dome and, um, you had bands playing from like, you had like Alice Cooper would play up there, Bob Seger, uh, Amboy Dukes, um, a lot of, you know, big acts from, you know, from Michigan would play up there. And as a result, there was a huge bar band, um, scene in Port Huron that just played like crazy all over the place. So there's a ton of like traditional kind of musicians from that town. So when you were early starting out, did you frequently play live shows and, and bars? No, I, I, I played some, um, just parties at our house. You know, that's the only place my punk band played, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Which is very Michigan, of course, obviously <laughs> when we all lived yeah. there it was house shows were the, you know, the main thing really. Yeah. When you're in a place that has basements, uh, you know, that it's really you know, ideal, uh, for muffling sound and <laughs> housing your gear, you know, it's going to flood eventually. Or, or just but... give the neighbors a case of Labatt's and, yeah, you, know, you, know, you know, just like, you know, it's it, it will be done. It'll, you know, I'll don't worry. This over. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was a, a music scene in Port Huron at the time. And so when, you guys did start hunting lodge were bands, you know, you said bands like Alice Cooper would come through, but were there any industrial more fringe type bands that were coming through Port Huron at the time? Not coming through, you know, problem was the, was the scene mom, but the record store was, it was amazing. The um, rough trade U S at the time had, had told uh, the buyer, the import buyer, even though this wasn't an import, that's the way everything got, thrown into racks back, right, right. back mm -hmm. in the day. Um, it told them that we, that record store sold the most uh, Throbbing Gristle greatest hits than anybody else. They they ordered a box of Throbbing Gristle greatest hits and, it, you know, it, it was pretty pretty amazing for back then. And Full Moon had the um, the TG box set, um, the 24 hours, the tapes <gasps> oh. for sale too. They actually wow. sold that. All right. So so a, a really rare gem of a record store that you guys that you awesome. worked at and that oh, you guys totally. met at. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So in the problem days and, and becoming hate gray, that was also Carla and Thomas Nordstrom, right? Involved in that project. Yes. And Paul Steinborn, who does shame exposure. Um, mm. Paul was in the, uh, in problem when I first saw them, uh, he played guitar for him and, uh, but then he had, yeah, he, he moved on and then that's when, uh, hate gray came in, into existence. Okay. And that, that kind of, uh, seems to be the core of like what SM operations was also releasing when you guys started, right. was putting out your stuff, some shame exposure. And then I actually, I saw another project that I'm completely unfamiliar with, which is John Wright and the young losers. Oh, oh yeah. It's great. <laughs> oh yeah. So what, what was that? <laughs> what, what can you tell me about that one? Go Lon. <laughs> the uh, John was a, a local legend. He, I, I remember him being with his hat about seven foot tall. Um, 
this wore a like a giant leather like cowboy hat type of thing um and a fringed leather jacket now it seemed to me that he wore it like a duster he seemed like he wore it all year round too and uh he, he's very spaghetti western looking uh, totally <laughs> yes yeah beard and scruffy he had a a a, a thing about bob dylan uh he he claims that bob dylan stole songs of his and actually stole his um girlfriend uh mm. marty he wrote and recorded a bunch of songs just him and an acoustic guitar and they were very 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 bob dylan sounding and but just really really <laughs> loose i mean his sense of timing was <laughs> it was pretty amazing we uh to give you a, an idea we had to I, I thought we would get everyone together at the harrington ballroom i think we were doing a show or did i just we just ran it for that but anyways, uh, we got all these musicians from Detroit come up and a lot of our, the people we knew. So we had this big like orchestra of, of young people um, to play with him. And we, we suddenly realized that he, his timing was just all over the place. We, we started a couple takes and then stopped and he, he said, I want to talk to you. And we went off in a room and he's, you know, this towering guy over me, just like, you know, you, these guys don't know how to fucking play their instruments and so on. And you hear the tape back and you go, well, they're trying to follow you, but you know, he's like, the tempo goes up, the tempo goes down and everybody just kind of falls apart and then tries to come back on. It's, it's that part part's pretty great. Wasn't that the session where I walked out Oh yeah. I went, I went down to the, I just said, I'm out. You, when you're ready for me, I'll just be down to, I'll be at the red Fox. I'll be in the basement. Yeah. At the tavern. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the tavern, yeah. yeah. Scott's, Scott had very little patience for uh, silliness. <laughs> Understandable. Oh, that's amazing. That's what a great, what a great story. So SM operations being your, your label, but it also started out as a zine, right? Started yeah, as first. a zine, yeah, and yeah. and before that, uh, in the in the zine, it references uh, Smarm Zine. Hmm. Well, that's where the the name comes from, Smarm Magazine. It's a a little fanzine, usually a one sheeter that I did for a number of years when I was going to CMU. Um, and Scott was doing Screw Machine, so both SMs. We put the slash in there to be cheeky. All right, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, so. Out of out of sort of ending Smarm and starting SM Operations, you did you did one issue of the magazine and then sort of Hunting Lodge got kicked off. Is that how that worked? Yeah, it, the doing Hunting Lodge was more fun than the zine. Just kind of, uh, it just kind of ended by itself, right, Lon? We just kind of did what we wanted to do with that, and then um, we were having more fun, you know, doing the music. So. Yeah, I think by May we started, uh, we just did a tentative thing together and then we went, okay, there's actually something here. So we uh, brought in uh, Carla and uh, and when I went to music, yeah, we just abandoned the uh, the magazine, but kept the name. Yeah. The, the other thing to note is that when, so when Hate Gray broke up, um, I for instance, I had still had no equipment. I had, you know, an amplifier and a guitar and maybe a pedal no real like, you know, industrial equipment. And when that band broke up, uh, Lon and I kind of swooped in and, and picked over um, all the leftover, you know, Korg gear and wow. Roland gear. And so we were like, you know, totally set up. 
so talking about gear, I know that uh, an MS twenty was used, right? I had an MS twenty, yeah. And Lon, what were you what were you using at that time? Uh, a whole junkyard full of stuff. I had uh, the, the basic thing was a Roland uh, base synth, you know, the GR thirty three B, I think it was. Um, you know, primitive uh, base synth uh, that didn't track really well, but it made some made some interesting noises. And uh, so I used that for Hate Gray and the start of Hunting Lodge. Uh, then a I had this snare that actually a lot of the sounds on on Harrington Ballroom um, that you would think were synths are actually this snare. You it, it would just it was just a, a dual oscillator that you could this thing would just go into the stratosphere with noise. Yeah, some metal percussion. Although Scott played some also vocals. Oh, I had a violin. You know, sorry, Jen. And uh, harmonizer. That was something that I, when we we were listening to TG, they I you know wanted to know what this sound was. I finally went to a music shop and they said, you know, it's it's a harmonizer. We found one used and suddenly realized that we couldn't use it like. TG sound did because it just sounded like TG. It's it was like the <laughs> right. signature thing. All that 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 whole world of sound at the end of the their shows was, you know, to see like the harmonizer did about half the work on that. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Scott, you had a you had an MS twenty. What else were you using? Uh, MS twenty, uh, the SQ ten sequencer, and the vocoder. Um. The Korg vocoder, the, what is it? The VO10 or something. I don't know what the, the number is on it, but the uh, I had that. And then um, at one point I had this Roland guitar synth um, that, what was that, Von, uh, Lana? SPV something or other. Uh, it was really yeah, weird. That sounds it's, right. It, it's, uh, it's very distinctive. I can hear it like, out loud on the um on this current release the the early stuff i can spot that synth everywhere it's played um had a very distinct sound um and then um at some point i figured out how to plug my guitar into the ms20 oh i had a ms04 synth pedal which was basically a modulator pedal and that you know that really created a lot of the sounds for uh for will for instance on my part anyways yeah, but going back to like Harrington Ballroom and uh, and Exhumed, all the the Carlos era stuff, uh, you only had the MS or you started out with that rack mount synth, that weird synth, and you yep. had you did have the, the MS Korg. twenty during that, right? Yep, I had the Korg, that's all that it. Korg gear. No, all the Korg gear and oh, that, you had the vocoder still. Uh, all or that already? stuff. Yeah, all that stuff from Thomas from oh, Thomas no Nordstrom from. Uh, problem in hey gray he tom got rid of the whole kit and caboodle wow. and then the jc120 i got from jeff uh hardman from problem hey gray so what was your path to getting to the point where you hear something like thriving gristle or spk and your brain is just like yes this is for me and do you recall what album either you guys or uh, both you guys do you recall the album or the track from something like SPK or Thriving Gristle that the first one you heard that just, Oh my God, I need to know more about this. Yeah, totally. And it, uh, once again, goes back to Port Huron. I was at CMU and I little, I'll try to make this as quick as possible. I was working at a record store up there called Boogie Records 
And um, one day I'm I'm working at the store. This uh, kid comes in, looks like Sid Vicious. He's a skateboarder. And he stops in the doorway and he points up to the to the uh, speaker and said, who's playing this? And it was like, you know, it was like Devo or the first B-52s album. It wasn't anything, you know, amazing. And I said, I am. And he goes, when do you, when do you work till? I told him. And then he goes, okay, I'll be right back. Went home, came me about a foot stack of records. He says, I'll, I'll pick these up next week. You know, I'm, I'm Tim. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And I thought, wow, there's a bunch of weird shit he's got here. It's like No New York and the first pop group album. <laughs> And uh, this, you know, TG album, it was uh, a second uh, report, a second any report. And I took those all home and it, it ruined me for school because I didn't come out of my dorm room ever, ever again, except to go to the, try to start this band. Um, but I listened to a lot of this stuff on headphones because you have roommates in, in the dorm. And the TG, I remember specifically because I... I put that on. I'm listening to all this other stuff. It was quite a variety of of post-punk and and punk and even like electronic music, Tangerine Dream and so on. Um, But then I put on the TG album. It's middle of the night. You know, my trying not to wake up my roommates and I'm listening to Slug Bait. And I'm, yeah, at first I can't. It's like, no, I'm not. I can't be hearing this right. And I'm listening to the lyrics of Slug Bait. And I I moved back to him. Oh, fuck. This is, it's a serial killer. This is really fucking destroyed. I took off the headphones and just put that record away. I was like, oh man, I'm not listening to that shit again. And then, but it kept, it kept in my right. head. But mm-hmm. before I went to, to give it back to Tim, I, I recorded a cassette of it, gave it back to Tim. And then that week I started playing the cassette all the time. And then it just, I, you know, I started talking to him about that and, you know, I, I just went, fell head over heels in, in love with it after that. So that's my part. Heck yeah, you were hot on the heels of love. There what you about you, Scott? What was your path, and what were some of the earliest um, stuff that you that you heard? I I was I was buying punk rock records from Full Moon. I was still in punk rock mode, and um, I I don't know somebody at the store probably was playing some Throbbing Gristle. Caught my ear. I I so I was listening to Throbbing Gristle. A lot of that sort of thing before I met Lon and uh, I know I was listening to like White House and uh, all the come org stuff and nurse with wound because when I was doing screw machine, I, I sent William Bennett a tape and uh, awesome. uh, he, I was like, Hey, this is, would be great for come organization. And <laughs> yeah. he, he was like, Hey, you know, I admire your moxie, kid, but you know we're we're good. <laughs> That's uh, great. And do I, you still, wait, and do I, you still have that letter? I do. Excellent, I do. Yeah. excellent, excellent. I do. Uh, yeah, Knox Mitchell did a, uh, a screw machine like box set uh, a couple few years ago, and did a little um, booklet in there, and that's that's included in there. Um, oh, I have awesome. to pick it up. Awesome. And 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 um and I so SPK was in the picture too because I sent them a tape. Um before hunting lodge. Uh, I still have that letter too. That's very nice. Um, rejection letter. Awesome. Um, (laughs) so, uh, but anyways, I think, so I was aware of that stuff and honestly it wasn't until I heard, uh, the first dome album, um, uh, by Gilbert and Lewis that, that just blew my mind. It was like, I can do that. You know, that's, I mean, there's a song on there called fucking amp noise. You know, and it's just, it's just like a guitar <laughs> leaning against and just amp, just like kind of humming along. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I can fucking do that. 
Yeah, I can totally do that. So that was the impetus to getting to, to doing screw machine. So awesome. I mean, we can talk about TG and SPK all day long. I love it. No problem. Yeah, but still, no, I mean, we're all the same dome. too. It's like we we never yeah. we never got over TG and SPK. That's so cool <laughs> to hear about the the dome record, and I love mm-hmm. hearing the. Uh, the SPK and Comorg rejection letters. We'll have to, I would have <laughs> yeah. to pick up that set because I do need to yeah. see that. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll hook you up. Awesome, awesome. So, so you guys are just now. You're just in this world. You're listening, and the meeting of the minds happens at the record store between you two and Hunting Lodge and SM Operations is getting underway. How long from starting playing as Hunting Lodge together till the Harrington Ballroom show? Oh, it was very quick. I yeah, it's fast. Uh, I, May we started uh, playing together in the uh, in Carla's basement, and uh, by September we did the show. So it was awesome. lightning fast. And, and what was the Harrington Ballroom? Can you, can you give us a give us a feel of the atmosphere at the Harrington Ballroom? You know, it's a a very lavish old uh, hotel that's now dilapidated, but it was still still going by the time we, we did that. Um, and just like a lot of hotels back then, they, it just had a very ornate, um, ballroom that they would, they would do all their events in. And, uh, so it's, you know, a bunch of white pillars and, and wood floors and, you know, super tall ceilings. And it had the, the reverb was just amazing on it. That, loud uh, room. very loud oh, room. Yeah. Yeah. It bounced awesome. like crazy and it wood floor. So, like on Harring- Harrington Ballroom show, you can hear Scott banging metal on the floor and the whole place is just, you know, erupting in stereo. You know, even Tide would love to have a, a room that nice to model. <laughs> um, and yeah, so and they would rent it out. Uh, and so we could get it for 75 bucks a, a night. And so we did. Oh, that's great. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the bar downstairs. Well, the uh, bar downstairs bonus. was where we were supposed to play the the show, but then um, I would like to think that it's because so many people bought tickets that they had to move it upstairs. But I think it's probably that the bar just didn't want to lose business that night and have a bunch <laughs> of kids because it's an all ages show, you know. And um, brilliant, <laughs> yeah. So I moved it upstairs. And so in in April of eighty two, you published the SM Operations Zine, but there's there's you know, a feature on nocturnal emissions in there. There's uh, an interview with Dominic from SPK in there. How, how did the interview come about? Well, they were all pen, kind of pen pals, right? Uh, Lon, we were, we were all like writing back and forth with, with, you know, Mersbau and, and especially uh, all the, the, the London guys like Les Mord and. Um, Jeff and, Russian. Uh, yeah. John, John yeah. Balance. Cool. Um, but yeah, there was, it was such a small, small scene back then, uh, you know, particularly the people actually doing, doing music or, or, or putting out music that, you know, we, it seems like there was 25, 30 people around the world doing interesting things that we were, uh, you know, corresponding with. So the SPK played the U S in, in 82. Did you, did you guys go to see those shows? Yeah, we we went to see the uh, the Chicago show. Um, Scott and I drove down, and uh, that was after the we had done done an interview. That that interview on there was done over the phone with Dominic. Uh, they were staying at Meat Puppets uh, house in Arizona. Cool. And uh, yeah, then we went down to uh, Chicago to see him. That's the only show that uh, 
that we saw during that tour. Was that the tour or the tour before where they were trying to get somebody in Port Huron to organize the show because they said that they they got the most like fan mail from <laughs> Port Huron, Michigan? Right. So and they, they, they tried wanted to, to explain to them what how small of a place it was, but yeah, they probably could have they probably could have uh, got as many people there that they had in uh, Chicago. Actually, <laughs> oh man, that would have been great. Did you guys see White House when they came to the states? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Detroit, Detroit, right? Uh, Chicago, right, uh, Lon? No, we saw him. Well, I saw him at Nunzio's. I think you were, you might have seen him prior to that, but. No, yeah, maybe, I, for some reason I thought it was Chicago. Peter maybe Soto. Maybe it's the Peter Soto's connection. by then and. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, yeah, we, yeah, it was amazing, yeah. Oh, that, that's so sick. The contact list in the SM operations thing, those were all people you were, you were pen pals with and communicating with regularly then by yeah. april 82 so you've got you've got not only like money kazaza and thermidor nocturnal emissions but talk talk and sub pop listed in there uh factrix mm. of course and and research i know a big inspiration to a lot of us was you know the research scenes when we were getting into this stuff and and what vicky vale was doing so uh how big how important was mail to you guys at that time i mean this this contact list is pretty impressive of just who who you must have been writing but uh See, were you involved in doing mail art stuff at all, or were you mostly just you know pen pal writing letters? I think Scott would send uh, interesting artwork and so on. Sometimes I was just interested in the music, and I I was just trying to find more of more of that and find details about it because you know it, it's hard to it's hard for people to understand how hard it was to get information about these things back in those days there mm -hmm. you had to have a had to be a record store and somebody cool at a record store that would tell you about it other than that i mean you were you're you were pretty much fucked uh, there's no, yeah. no way to find out about it here in the states especially in a small small midwestern town um I, yeah i was i was trading uh tapes and some artwork with uh with mb and um wow. which by the way i have to backtrack uh, Symphony for a Genocide was a pivotal, yes. like just head smasher that, I mean, yay, mm -hmm. SPK, TG, yeah. that's all great. But when that record hit me, um, that was a game changer. Um, but yeah, with, uh, MB, I was doing stuff with record back and forth and, um, and Mersbau. So uh, cool. a little bit, and a lot of, a lot of letter writing with, um, Lust Mord back and well, forth. When, you know, when, you know, GX said similar as well that MB and Mersbau were the people he was writing with at that time as well. So, you know, they were obviously, you know, Mersbau for Japan and MB for Italy. They were just made so many connections that still to this day, we are all still just like, mm -hmm. you know, we love hearing about that and we're all still connected. You know, I, I know Scott, actually you had, you had reached out a little bit ago and said you were talking to GX about something, you know what I mean? So like the connections are still all there. The GX is the one that um, actually turned me on to your podcast. Oh, awesome. Um, awesome. I, only, cool. I only met him recently, like last three, three years ago is the first time I met him. Cool. And he, yeah, he gave me a flyer or something and told me about uh, the podcast and awesome. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's he's such so a cool. great guy. Yeah, he's so, so generous cool. with his time. Yeah, and just but just like all these connections that we still get so excited about making, but we get, we love hearing about again the the effort that it had to had to be put in back in the eighties. That you know it wasn't 
a quick email. It was you were going to write. You're going to make some cool art. Maybe make a tape, dub off some some rehearsal <laughs> sessions, and mm-hmm. and send them off. And maybe they'll never. Yeah. You know who knows? You know. You just, buy that postage. Yeah. Yeah, and then sit and wait. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the waiting game. That's the thing that that's the thing all these young kids today don't understand. The waiting game. Yeah. They all, they all have Amazon brain. They're like, why isn't it here in five hours? I just ordered it. <laughs> but, the, but the trick was to flood the zone with volume, right? So you just right. keep pumping out mm-hmm. uh, um, missives to people and, you know, everything starts trickling in. And every other day, oh, there's a new something new from somebody else. So. That's yeah, that's that's the way it worked back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. so it's so exciting. So the Harrington Bar Room is that is the first show, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how how did you guys proceed after that show and what was your vision after that show? Oh, after that, I don't I think Carla stayed around for a little bit and we kept uh doing things in the basement uh but I, shortly after, uh, she decided to move to San Francisco and started making plans to, to do so. And so Scott and I were left to our own devices and we were so excited about what was going on by that time. We just, you know, went full, full force with it. And that's, like I say, that's when he picked up, uh, the, all that Korg equipment from Tom. And then I picked up the sequencer and Roland, uh, uh, the 808, the, the Roland uh, synth from Carla. Some somewhere uh, the Korg tape echo was the one I was using the sound on sound. Um, so that was it was quite a jump up from from that once we got that. But I, I something tells me that we did much of Will without that equipment. I think that equipment is mostly Nomad Souls ear, at least on my part, because a lot of that no, stuff on uh, yeah. on Will is pretty crude. Uh, just like Dr. Rhythms with a bunch of like a, a Radio Shack uh, r- digital reverb unit from like 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, just the nastiest sounding thing. You, and it just it sounds like a synth on there, but it's really just feedback from that thing well, with the drum machine be- beating a, on it. A lot of the uh, like the sort of Godzilla sounding sounds on Will are it's my guitar through that MS-20. That's that's because I, I had that set up. So, um, and some of the uh, more crude kind of sequencer things from that pre Nomad Souls period, that's all that, that core gear. So, um, yeah, when Tom got out of the business, he, he, he just got rid of everything. So, and I scooped it up. Yeah. Yeah. It was a smart move. I love it. (laughs) So after Harrington Ballroom, you guys, you guys started working on a full length, I guess, Carla leaves and, and Will somehow gets in progress right yeah we did the seven inch first right uh long no that was after after will uh, or after nomad souls after will yeah i think that was i think will came out in may of uh, 83 and then the single would have been that fall sometime yeah because that was like a it was kind of a departure it was uh you know the, it's very song oriented at least that that particular uh, uh, night from night was. So, so yeah, I, I think it was after Will. And how was Will recorded? Were you guys, you have a basement? Were you recording at the Harrington Ballroom again? Or where where was this stuff taking place? Some of it was, was at my apartment. Um, and then we would take it into uh, RCS, Rob Corbin Studios, which is just a, 
uh, it, it was a four track that uh, this uh, local guy had, and he he had built a a nice studio around it, like an actual um, isolation booth and and so on. So, uh, and he was nice enough to work with us on that. We never, I don't think we paid him, <laughs> but he would, you know, we I would take things that we would record at my apartment into there and and then add things to them. Um, I, I don't believe we ever actually grabbed, took a bunch of, um, uh, stuff in there and, and did things from scratch. I think. No, it's all over. I think we had yeah. a basis already. And Will is released on SM operations as an LP in 1983. How'd you guys go about pressing a record back then? Did you have anyone that was sort of guiding, guiding you on that, pointing things out, or did you just kind of figure it out? <laughs> No, that would have been much nicer if someone could have told us what to do. No, we had no fucking idea. I, I borrowed some money from my parents and, you know, I think we did the whole thing on like 3000 bucks, which, you know, to us, it was a lot of money. You know, we made it back for, for them, but, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of mistakes made on that. Uh, I don't think we got a test pressing. I thought, oh, we don't need a fucking test. What's a test pressing? <laughs> yeah. um, and then the guy, the guy was, uh. English was not his first language, Nim, who uh, who was the uh, mastering for this. And I had a, a conversations with him on the phone a couple different times. And he was just you could tell he was scratching his head trying to like, I don't I think there's something wrong with this. Um, <laughs> there's this. It's just, you know, you try to describe it. So, oh, no, I think that's what it's supposed to be. Because no, no, it's like it's not it's not music. It's like, uh, you know, there's some just it's. And so finally. Persuaded him that it's supposed to sound like that, um, but you know it's it was it's mastered so so low because the the bass content on there was not mastered well. I you know which came right mm -hmm. out of Rob's uh, studio, and we didn't know anything about mastering LP. So there's just all sorts of bass on the thing. So he had to turn it way way down. So that original pressing was it, it sounded pretty bad. Uh, uh, you know it's all bass and it's just very low. The 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 record the static is is louder than the music and a lot of parts on it it's funny my first experience with that record unfortunately wasn't an original pressing it was a the dark vinyl picture disc reissue of it oh, from I'm sorry 93 which, sounds even worse which does not sound good that's a terrible 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 sounding pressing oh my God. and does not do the the music justice at all so the yeah. the deus reissue from uh, what 2015 actually sounds fantastic and is really nice to hear that record on vinyl that way so I'll say if you if you still have that dark vinyl picture disc floating around, anybody out there, upgrade, please upgrade. <laughs> yeah, but keep keep it because picture disc rule. I mean, hang it on the wall. Oh, I got both. Hang it on the wall. I got both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get rid of the picture disc. What was the addition of Will? I th I think it was five hundred, or was it just three hundred? I thought it was three hundred. Maybe. How did you go about selling them? Just through the network you guys had already been developing and sending out flyers and and stuff like that well there was distributors back then um i think systematic was around uh yep. in california also i think rough trade us uh took some uh yeah and then you know cinema is out to all the our little industrial pen pals mm-hmm was this also about the time that you got in touch with necrophile records cuz you guys have a track on uh, one of the comps. Yeah, I think they had sent us a, a, a letter asking for uh, a, a submission to a, a comp that they're doing. It was that first one, the B666. 
So cool. What a cool one. And what a cool lineup on that one. You know, uh, mentioning Dark Vinyl, of course, reissuing it. But prior to that, you had a, another contact in Germany, which was uh, Andreas Mueller. Who uh, who released the Exhumed cassette in 83. How did that relationship come about? You know, once again, it's uh, he was just one of those people we were corresponding with. I I'm not sure who got in touch with who, but uh, I think the German release of the Harrington tape uh, spawned a lot of contacts. I think some people came out, especially from Germany. I, I always assumed he came from from hearing that. Yeah, very well might have. I, I really don't remember. I, I do. I, I want to back up, though. We can. Uh, and the, what I was trying to remember was that an interesting story about distributing will through Rough Trade US is that anybody that got their their album from them did not have get the uh, the flyer that was inside of it. The it's actually we didn't have enough money to to do actual uh, titles on the back or any kind of information because it was just me and a letter set, you know, the the will and hunting lodge. Um, so we just included a, a sheet inside of it, just a Xeroxed, uh, you know, sheet um, it, it telling the, it, it, the uh, song titles and so on. But it had a syringe dripping, you know, whatever was in the syringe at the time. And uh, the and apparently someone working at uh, at Rough Trade said that they took all the those out of there because of the drug reference. So no one, anybody that got their their. Uh, will copy through a rough trade distributor uh record store didn't get a did a copy of that gosh that's wild rough trade was very into censoring (laughs) things it seemed like at the time i guess i I I heard that story lon i don't remember hearing that story and i I think it blows my mind years later because you think about getting that record then and there is zero information other than no information lodge will and there's nothing yeah. on the labels. Uh, there's a scratch on the run out, but that doesn't tell you other thing other than A and B. Um, fuck. No, but that's yeah. with the the preponderance of information we get about bands these days. I think that's probably. I think a lot of people would like to go back to that. It's the the mystery of it is is uh, you know sparks your imagination. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. That Just would like have been, forever. Like, what the hell is this? That would have been the most exciting yeah. thing for, you know, we got that. What is this? We don't know it or, or whatever. If you, someone finds it in some record store and, you know, where at, you know, middle America and just picks it up. You know, we, yeah, we still love you that. You find out your friend has an insert that you don't have and it just drives you insane. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> right. That yeah, happens that's like, with us all the time. That's the fun of it. That's like a, one of us has metallic paper on something and we're like, no, yeah. did you get that? <laughs> yeah. That's still the fun of it. Were you guys playing live much at this time? No, our shows were very, very sporadic back then. It was, the first show Scott and I did was I think we had probably wrapped up uh, Will by that time. We on uh, what was it Good Friday or something on? Uh, yeah, at the Lodge. Yeah, the Good fitting, Friday show, of course. Nice. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, at the Lodge, which is a uh, like a common area of a trailer park that Jeff Chenault uh, uh, lived at. Oh, cool! Mm-hmm. And awesome. so then I guess that fall we did a, the SM Operations show. So there, you know. It's not like people were dying to uh, book us at, in shows that uh, we didn't turn down any. Um, but yeah, we we're very sporadic with the 
the concerts. What was the attendance like at those shows after Will came out? We did well. I mean, for a, a yeah. small town, I mean, it, everyone was there. <laughs> yeah. So moving on from Will, Nomad Souls would be the next sort of formal release from the band. And a change in direction from from what we hear on Will and from what we hear on Harrington Ballroom. And what was the genesis of that and, and sort of going a little bit more song oriented, having, so, you know, uh, another a vocalist come in and, and do some songs with you? You know, it, I think it's probably a frustration with people that that liked our liked our band back then, and and probably for Scott also that I was just restless. I never, I it, we were moving at such a fast speed. It seemed, and I was so uh, it was just, I was just devouring everything. Um, I, I just didn't want to look back. By the time Will came out, for instance, I don't think I listened to that album again when it came out until I don't know, probably ten, fifteen years later. No, probably ten. Probably about the time that uh, uh, Dark Vinyl wanted to reissue it, I just didn't. I didn't give a shit anymore about this stuff. Once I got done with it, put it in the can, bam, moved on to something else. And in this case, like we we said, the uh, uh, my equipment was more sophisticated uh, with all that uh, the sequencer gear, um, and then early uh, samplers with the uh, uh, instant replay uh, pedal. Those things were blowing our minds. And the eight hundred eight. Um, and the 808. Mm. So yeah, everything, it was, you know, back then the, the machines talked, you know, I mean, they, they had their own personalities. If you, I, I would just, you know, plug them together and, and try to listen if for them to give me an idea of what they wanted to do. And, um, it with, with all the analog gear, it was just, uh, they, they all had such personalities that it was easy to, to do this stuff. But, you know, it wasn't a calculated thing. I didn't say, oh, I, we, we want now to move into something more rhythmic or something. It just, it just happened. But then around that time also, I mean, after Nomad Souls, Travel Warning Shot comes out. And that's to, to people who are maybe more into the goth and sort of more modern industrial at the time, you know, the, <laughs> that realm of things, the skinny puppy realm of things. Travel Warning Shot is probably the, the song that, that they know, right? Cause that had a little bit more, uh, I guess, reach or success than something like Will did with with a different audience albeit uh did you guys see any sort of reaction to that were you still playing shows around that time well we that that song when i first i first did the the sequencer drum machine part to that i gave that to scott and uh which what i would i would do i would have usually i would start the the basics of these songs and then give it to him and he would he has good good taste and things he would say no that one sucks this one's good um <laughs> hey i think i could do this to that and so let me go from there but so i i remember giving him that tape of travel warning shot and he gives it back and slams it on the counter when he gets done with it and he goes it sounds like fucking devo <laughs> like, oh, okay put that one on the shelf so i really thought that that song would never go any farther but then i started i put some some uh rhythms on there some like different drums and um it snuck it back to him again <laughs> you know it's like oh hey how about this well how do you like it now and uh he's like oh you know, so it's kind of all right so we we decided to put it on a we were going to do our first tour we put it on the uh, on the list for uh, for the tour, although we never really did the song live. But he had come up with some lyrics by that that point, and uh, recorded the the vocals for that when we were leaving for that tour on the like seven in the morning at my house. 
um, put him in a booth. And so at seven o'clock in the morning, I'm living in an apartment with neighbors about five feet away. And so his his vocals were were so low because we were trying not to wake up wake up the neighbors. <laughs> oh my so, god! So so I didn't hear anything. You know, put it away, and then we went on tour. Uh, we got to Chicago, and uh, it, it seems as though every show we would do, we hated it, hated the, the sound. There was something wrong, something fucked up. So. Uh, we're just pissed off at the end of the show, especially Scott. Scott had a, you know, he was pretty volatile and, uh, you know, he would just like start getting really fucking pissed off. And so I remember that show, he all of a sudden just went just ape shit on tribal warning shot. And, uh, and we thought all oh, this show fucking sucked, you know, and he, and so we got back, we got back in, in Scott's uh, truck driving to the next show. We popped that, that tape in and we both look at each other when tribal warning shot comes on. And like, holy fucking shit, that's okay. Maybe it's a pretty good song. Um, and yeah, that was the out, that was the um, track that was used in the B side of, of the studio version of it. Okay. But, you know, just to finish that up, Scott's vocals were so low on there and the energy was so different than the other side. It was, it was bizarre. So Scott, by that time had moved to San Francisco and uh, I was left with this so song that I thought was, I thought it was good, but it just needed something. So we asked uh, Trish Damon, who I'm not sure what our relationship was at that point. Were you were you going out with her by then? Uh, yeah, I was going out with her. Yeah, well, we we separated after I moved. Yeah, but the other thing too is remember the first part, the first leg of that tour, we were driving to New York, and we were playing that tape in the truck, and super loud, and like rehearsing it, like practicing it. Like that's the way I could like remember how the lyrics could go. Cause I still wasn't sure, even though we'd already done a recording of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was still tentative about like, I should do this part here and then, then repeat that. And, and uh, yeah, I totally remember like rehearsing it on the road. And then, you know, it was kind of lackluster in New York. And uh, I think we did a Boston show then too. And it was, eh. So yeah, by the time, and the Chicago show uh, started out, with a lot of difficulties and some sideshow shit going on, you know, apart from the show. So by the time we actually got on stage, yeah, I was, I was feeling it. And the sound system <laughs> in that room was by far the best we'd played with too. The PA Which, was oh, sick. Yeah. Where was that? What venue? Chicago, the 950. What kind of bands are you playing with on that tour? Hmm. Fuck if I can that's remember. A good, that's a great question. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't remember any of the, any of the other bands. I think, uh, in Boston, um, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. New York, he, there wasn't a, it was just us, right? New York was just, uh, it was like a DJ and then us. Played dance and, then, and um, booing. I think, I think it was just a DJ and then us. Yeah. We didn't have to move mm -hmm. our equipment or anything. Mm. And then what, what year is this then? 84? Uh, early 84. Is or it, no, actually late 84. Would the Boston show have been when you met John Zawiz or were you in contact with him yeah. before that? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we met him during that show. And did you see any uh, sort of success or mark in popularity with tribal warning shot? Did that get to a different audience? Well, they, you know, we put our version of it out, which, um, it was a four track EP, um, the live version, the, a different version of the studio that wasn't quite finished yet. And, uh, then two other tracks and 
it, it was the sound quality wasn't also wasn't great. Still hadn't figured out how to record a, a fucking album um, or for vinyl. Um, so it, it sounded a little bit, a little bit lackluster. So we we added some things to add some uh, a uh, this like sampled synth line during the uh, the inter, like the drum interlude, and then we added more drums to it, um, and then punched it up a little bit, and then so that's when Normal put it out, and uh, you know we heard years later that it that had done really well. I know that. At the time, we didn't we didn't know how how anything was doing, um, other than they wanted us to to put out an album with them, um, which you know I feel kind of bad for for them and for Andreas is that he probably vouched for us and he was working at, at normal, vouched for us and then we put out uh, Nomad or uh, put out Eight Ball on on the the album you know or Eight Ball on their label. I'm sure they're expecting another like a whole dance song um, oriented album. Um, so well, didn't, um, didn't the, the sterile records, um, that came from Graham saying that he had heard tribal warning shot in a disco or something, uh, in Germany. And he said, the well, place that was, was different. I, I actually had sent him a, a copy of a nomad souls. And then I sent him the, like a tape of, of pop songs that I, I liked electronic pop songs were going like, uh, uh, John Robbie was, uh, mm-hmm. I was fucking, I loved him back then. Um, I sent him that kind of stuff. And I also sent him trial warning shot. I think that's where he first heard it. And then, so yeah, he, he wanted to put it on their, their compilation album after that, and then put out uh, nomad souls, uh, over there. And you, you mentioned eight ball. So let's, let's talk about eight ball. <laughs> uh, how how did that record come about? That seems like a, a big shift in what the band sounds like, but also even looking sort of at the uh, what the band looked like. I mean, on the on the back the back <laughs> cover <laughs> and everything, there was a, a definite uh, different direction. So, uh, how what was the genesis of of the existence of Eight Ball? Well, the cover's tongue in cheek, but the uh, you know it's just the the equipment evolving into what it was on that, uh, for that, uh, you know, by that, that time I had gotten rid of the, uh, the analog gear almost entirely. It's all digital, um, digital. It, it, and I did much of this stuff while Scott was away in, in San Francisco. I didn't think he was, he was coming back. Um, so I, I was going to go, I was, you know, cocky enough to think I was going to go on and keep doing hunting lodge. You know, Trish wanted to keep working on things. But without Scott, I really, my, my instincts were not good. I, I, I actually, he was someone I needed to keep me in line and not get too, uh, I don't know how to, how to put it, too silly of my stuff. I, I just have bad, I have bad taste a lot of time. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> um, he kept me in line with it and, you know, I said, no, this, this sucks. This is good. So on and so forth. So, but much of that, that was already done by the time he came back. A lot of the, the basics of that, I was working with uh, Helmut Robinson in his studio now by that point. And, um, you know, he's, Helmut's a, you know, old school rock dude, uh, you know, ACDC, Motorhead, uh, kind of guy uh not he didn't have our background um so i think that had a little bit to do with it he you know and you know it's just uh it's just the way it was scott came back and then we finished up uh finished up the album 
but you know a lot of the a lot of the motivation a lot of the excitement for what we were doing before was gone for me it was it was hard for me to write these songs because i i was at war with uh melody so i i couldn't didn't want to put a bunch of notes on a, an album you, you've got eight balls i got two fucking notes um yeah and but then i'm trying to do things that are more song oriented uh song structure and so on uh with vocals and it just you know it's just looking back on it it was kind of a joyless time. We were, you know, still moving ahead, but it wasn't things that things had changed. The equipment wasn't talking anymore. And I'm not a composer. I'm not Jim Thurwell. Um, I, you know, I'm just some, some knucklehead that likes to make noisy sounds. Um, I don't know, Scott, well, what's, what's your take to, about it? To, uh, to be fair. I mean, it was kind of fun, you know, doing the rock thing, you know, that was, you know, I, I came back from San Francisco. I'd sold all my gear, uh, except for a, uh, uh, an Insonics, uh, Mirage keyboard and, um, which had some samples that I made that actually ended up on eight ball. Some of the weirder shit on eight ball is, is from that. Um, and, and I just had a guitar and that was it. So it was kind of starting from scratch. Um, I didn't, I wasn't in love with the digital age. Um, so playing guitar, just bashing out stuff was, was fun. Um, and then, you know, Lon, I shared, I shared some of the, the writing, uh, duties with him. He would come up with the tunes. And again, I just, uh, throw some, some lyrics at it that wasn't too embarrassing. And then, um, yeah, it is what it is. It's kind of a, it's definitely a left turn, but it's where our head was at the time. It was, you know, kind of fun. And Scott, is it true that Lon has bad taste? Oh, terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really bad. Oh my God. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even know what kind of coffee to drink without me telling him. <laughs> so, so do you guys, did you guys, you seem to have had that relationship where you could just be like, no, I hate this. Do something else. Or, 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 I don't really like this, but maybe I can make it something. It just seems like you guys can be very honest with each other and call bullshit on each other and that kind of thing. Is that how you guys operated? Yeah, I don't think I ever was that harsh. Um, <laughs> like saying, this sounds like Devo. Like, I like Devo. <laughs> Heck yeah. Oh, well, yeah, but so, you didn't want to be in a band that sounded like it. <laughs> in some weak-ass Devo band. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... I think we got to know each other well enough that he could kind of tell what and I wasn't feeling it. Um, I didn't really have to come right out and say it. It, it. Instead of me being super enthusiastic, I could, he could tell I wasn't into it. Um, uh, or sometimes if it just needed too many changes, then we would, he, I think he would just shelve it and get discouraged with it. And, you know, to try and get it to the place where we all agreed on it. But I, I mean, I think there's some stuff on eight ball that's, that's pretty great. You know, dark night of the soul is a pretty heavy fucking song. And, um, you know, broken gardens is a weird fucking song. There are good songs on there. I think the, the only good lyrics I ever wrote was on, uh, going down. Scott was the, the poet, you know, my, my lyrics were always just too on the nose. And, you know, I, I didn't once again, comes down to taste. Know, dude. And... May this meat kill me is right up there. Oh yeah. That, that was good. Yeah. 
Well, you know, for for us, especially when you when you look back on the history of bands, albums that were, for lack of a better word, controversial at the time, when the years go on and it, you know, at this point now, and you look back, so we we love those left turns, like like yeah. Tara and I are giant Machine Age Voodoo fans. Like I think that record's ama- that a, record. an amazing electronic pop record. <laughs> At the time, you know, it was obviously very controversial and and still to this day, there's people who are like, nope, like just like shut it down. But like, yeah, I'll accidentally but, throw it on to the wrong person. And, yeah, Oof. they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, but 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 I, we love the left turns. We get yeah. we get excited at those things, looking back on everything. And maybe at the time there, you know, there's that thing where people are like, oh, this isn't what I this isn't the record I wanted but now to me when you look back on something like 8-Ball and something like that you're like no it's awesome like it's it's a totally weird turn or, or you know when Ramla you know became a you know a quote unquote rock band like mm-hmm. I love that stuff I think it's great you know so I think when bands take left turns it can be it, it can be a little hairy when it's happening but you know it's almost that thing like it's duty now for the future. If we're just going to keep talking about Diva, you're doing that duty now. <laughs> yeah. So in the future, we can look back and be like, no, it's it's the it's the entire world that the band created. And I think Honey Lodge is a perfect example where it's it's created this entire world so that now when you look back, you can you can pick you know, okay, well, I know I'm going to listen to this era. I'm going to listen to Harry Barroom. That's what it's going to sound like. Oh, I'm gonna, now I want to listen to Eight Ball. Like mm-hmm. you can look at the entire world. And I, I I love that. You know, I I love looking back on that for sure. Yeah, there's definitely um, the different eras. Yeah, the variety of I don't listen to just one kind of music, so it's I can't imagine doing the same kind of music, you know, for for a long time. I I, I know that people do that and they get very good at what they do, but I I'm just too restless and have to keep moving. And um, even the even the way I listen to music, it's just you know I can listen to Glenn Miller and then SBK back to back. It doesn't. Some people get you know get whiplash from it, but I I it just keeps me keeps it fresh for me you know oh absolutely mm-hmm. that's the best so eight ball wasn't the last offering from hunting lodge though there was also carnivora mm. right in 89 uh how, how what was that stuff from the eight ball sessions was that new stuff you guys made for an ep with plans to do more no that was all new for the for the ep <laughs> that was one of those things where i don't know if i if we had been jilted by them or or it was just our, you know, being punk rock assholes at heart. Um, still by that time, uh, you know, they, there was like, a, a, I think Wax Tracks put out a, the, an album, some sort of a vegan thing. And that was like our like, oh, fuck you. This is, you know, it it was really probably I was probably hurt that I probably sent them a tape and they didn't want to want to put it out. And it's like, oh, fuck you then. Oh, yeah, here's a fucking song for you. You know, that kind of shit. Um, and now I'm pretty much vegan so it's things have changed (laughs) (laughs) and they're still around (laughs) we had pretty heavy chips on our shoulders back then too i mean i certainly did so the whole fuck you thing was like breathing and you know in the the carnivora ep that actually the 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 genesis of that was the we never sleep um tape those were the original like kind of demos was totally like garage rock for us. We just like bashed that shit out and then polished it up for the, um, the vinyl version. So Carnivora sort of signals the, the end of Hunting Lodge in terms of releasing new material. What stopped you guys? Like, what did the band break up? Did you just decide not to do it? Did you just kind of drift apart? Yeah, I referenced earlier that the, the machines 
weren't weren't speaking to me anymore. This they weren't. Uh, it was a. It was just a writing new material was a just a pain in the ass. It wasn't. I wasn't having a lot of fun doing it anymore. Um, and then I, I didn't like the tour. You know, Scott is a natural born front man. Um, he, he loves being on stage and I, I really hated it. I'm, uh, it's not, not something I wanted to do, but I, we did it for, I did it for promotion. That was my thing. You know, yes, I did have fun. A lot of times once I got out there, I would, I could have, have enjoy a show, but most of the, most of the whole touring thing, I, I just did not like to do so, but that's what we had to do back then. It was bands that, that became popular. Um, not only do they have superior talent, like butthole surfers and and uh, uh, Sonic Youth were touring at the same time we were on that first tour. The difference between them and us is we took four more years to come up with another another album, four more years to do another tour. And while they were just going home, working in their copy shops, making some money, getting back on the road, and just like constantly, you know, getting better at what they're doing and constantly finding a new audience. Um, you know, we we just. I, that that's really what we should have done. We, and, but I was the one who didn't, I, I didn't want that. Um, by carnivore came out and I was already just really, you know, it was just becoming a slog to me. And I, I, the, I really kind of didn't want to stop just cause, uh, you know, from Scott and, and clay. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the final, final straw for me was, um, you had uh, Thurwell on here the other day on on an interview uh, a few shows back. Um, he, yeah, we were huge Thurwell fans. Uh, the whole album is still one of my top ten albums. I could I could listen to that day in day out and, and never get sick of it. Um, just genius stuff. And uh, so you know, as time goes by, everyone we didn't get into. We weren't doing rock music because he did Wise, but it was already we we're already you know going towards that direction. It was just kind of a, it seemed to be a, uh, just a a thing that was in the in the ether. You know, every, a lot of the bands with us were starting to do things like that, um, or at least adding guitars. Their things, some some doing more than others. By the time we we got to the end of the band, I had done a couple demos that we fleshed out into two, two songs and um, sent the tape to Thurlwell at through Tim Caldwell, who did a lot of our, he was a, a Detroit guy is a Detroit guy. Um, an artist who did a, a lot of our early covers or mid mid period covers. Um, good friend of ours. And, uh, but he was also a friend of uh, Thurlwell. So he sent, uh, sent that tape and Thurwell called me up one day and agreed to produce these two songs and it was kind of a moment of reckoning to me. It's, it was, you know, do I keep stringing Scott along uh, to, for this ride when I, my heart's not into it. And now we've got, it, we've finally got like a real, a real leg up. Him producing these songs would not only just say it sound great. Um, it would just give us so much more uh, notoriety. Um, because he was still still the shit by you know 1989, and I just uh, it I just dragged my heels on it and never did anything with it. He wasn't asking that much money, but I pretended like it was so much I didn't want to do it. You know, let's you know wait a little bit and um, you know it, looking back on it, it was I 
should have at least done that, at least been honest enough with everybody, or at least honest with myself, because I'm not sure if this was that conscious back then. But I dragged my my heels on enough until finally, you know, I just said, I think I I need to be done with the the band. Um, then I started a record store. I stole all my equipment. I never touched an instrument for 10, 15 years after that, 10 years at least. And are you, are you making any music now? Well, Scott ended up still going on after that, um, doing things on his own. I mean, he, he obviously, I don't think he was super happy that, uh, at that point I just decided, to out of the blue. I, I could tell you weren't into it and that was fine. It, I'd rather not do it than do it when, when with you and you, you weren't into it. Um, and you know, just, I mean, just kind of set the record straight. Lon likes to talk about how I love being on stage, but, um, I, I was constantly always irritated on stage. You're looking at a man who was angry. I was angry. I knew something was always fucking going to go wrong. Um, I was anticipating that. Uh, so I was throwing preemptive, uh, you know, pissy fits and I felt like a caged man. I, I, mm -hmm. I was, I hated the audience. I had a, just a complete, um, violent kind of just reaction to like, I, I don't know, it was a complicated, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. To but. me, that sounds like the perfect thing for a great front man. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, like, I'm like, yeah, you are. Yeah. That's what I want to see. I want to see oh, I was, hate and contempt. Fuck all the time. I was constantly. Pure animosity. Uh, Lon, you remember that show in Denver? Um, we were throwing the chains around and some kid in the, in the audience, like picked up the chains and threw them down. And I turned around and he had, he might've pissed himself. I, I'm not sure. He had this look on his face like, Oh fuck. I'm sorry. Here, here's your, here's your chains. You know? That's not audience I, participation time, kid. No, I, I just, yeah, I really, I just wanted to throttle most of the people all the time. I just didn't, um, yeah, I, I felt, you know, self, super self-conscious and, um, uh, I turned that into anger and, um, just, you know, being belligerent and, uh, so, but yeah, no, at the end I could tell, you know, Lon's heart wasn't in it. I was kind of not into it so much either. Um, I could tell it was petering out and I, I don't know. It did seem like, I know Lon says it wasn't a lot of money. It felt, it felt like a lot of money at the time. And, um. I certainly at the time I couldn't have pitched in on it. So he would have had to bear that load and I, I wasn't into it. But you, you did continue or resume making music, mm -hmm. right? With Witches of in, Malibu. Yeah. In Michigan after hunting lodge, I, I did a couple of projects. Um, didn't release anything, did a few shows and then, uh, moved to LA and I contributed to some other records people were making for a brief period, I was in Far Flung, the L.A. band. Yeah, then for a long period, I didn't do anything until uh, I started doing The Witches of Malibu. And that's still going today? As of, yes, right now, yes. As of this second. <laughs> yeah. It's well, see, this, this, all this recording is going to go on the next release. It's be. <laughs> so, well, I see, you know, uh, which is a Malibu like case behind you. And I see a bunch of gear and stuff behind you in, uh, in our zoom call here. So I, uh, I would hope you're still going cause you got a bunch of cool gear there. <laughs> yeah. I, but I haven't done anything well since before the pandemic, 
um, between the pandemic and work and family and, uh, we had to do a big move, you know? Um, uh, so we just moved into this place last year and I still really kind of am unpacking and figuring out how to record again. And, um, it's, yeah, it's taken a minute. Um, but yeah, I'm still doing some stuff. Is that uh, background? Is that from the lunar lander back there? You got this, uh, like yeah, it's top. Yeah. It's, aluminum. it's classified, classified. I can't talk about it. <laughs> so when did you guys sort of feel that there was interest, re, uh, a renewed interest in hunting lodge and especially the, the early stuff, you know, the, the, the will and the more raw industrial stuff. Was it dark vinyl? Was there stuff in the nineties that you were feeling like, Oh, there's this sort of new crop of, noise and industrial bands who are definitely like, you know, are familiar with mm -hmm. that stuff and are, and are psyched and are, are still psyched on that early stuff. Did you guys have a sense of that? And when did that come about? You know, we never really, back then you never knew what was going on unless you were communicating with people in other, other areas. And, and it, I was running a record store by that time, um, in New Baltimore, Michigan, it's on the, the northern end of the Detroit urban sprawl is where it, country starts at like 23 mile road for a while. Okay. Gotcha. Um, okay. It's right and, in that edge. Yeah. And you were in, you were running a record store. Yeah. I started a, a record store after, right after we stopped hunting lodge. How, and how long did Nine. you have that store? 10 years. Wow. Huh? Tell us a little about running a record store in a, a sort of an out, out of the way spot in, in the Midwest in the nineties and a pivotal time, but it's, we can go to that. But before I, I forget cool, about cool, it again, cool. the, you know, you're, you're talking about Scott, you mentioned about hearing Graham tell the story about being in that club. And he was, it was one of the SPK tours when they were doing, you know, they were more of a pop pop band at that point with Sanan. It was on that tour that he, uh, he went, Oh, I would, you know what I tell you, I was at this, this disco in Germany and this place, he's describing the place. He's in the, you know, the walls of the, of the uh, bathroom, um, in the bathroom stall, shutting this thing. And it just sounds like this thunderous echo of the, cause it's like four inch metal doors, uh, you know, slamming. And uh, he goes, I'm in the bathroom and I hear this, this sound. I went, what is this? There's something like, I recognize that. And he goes, Oh, Travel Warning Shot. They're playing Travel Warning Shot at this German disco. And he says that people were really, really into it. Um, and you know, we, we didn't know that's the only, he's the only person that we ever heard say anything about, uh, about that. Um, but that, that's how things were back then. You didn't yeah. really, mm -hmm. we were, you know, we weren't in that, those circles and, you know, we we're so crotchety. We didn't feel like we were in a, any kind of a group. So, um, but what were you, I'm sorry. I, I, oh, I, I, I started going to uh record what was store, it like running oh, record a record stores. store in the nineties. Well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a cool record store. The, it was, you know, CD era. So, um, but you know, it was, it was pretty much all CDs and, and cassettes, um, and just pop, pop stuff. It's small, small town, smaller than Port Huron. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was just, uh, just the next, I worked in record stores the whole time. Uh, so it was just the next next step uh, were, running were my you, own. Were you carrying anything like any noise stuff or was it purely a regular pop record store? 
you know, we I had employees that would take in consignments from people, but not. I don't think there was a whole lot of noise going on that I I was aware of back then. I know that uh, a fellow by the name of John Browning was one of my customers, and when he found out who who I was, um, he was pretty blown away. And then he said, "Oh, these you got to meet these guys in 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 Ann Arbor. You know, I I, I got to you know we got to got to get you guys together." I know John I Browning. I got I have no fucking <laughs> clue. I don't want to be. I don't want to meet anybody. Thank you, though, because um, I, I really just didn't give a shit. And it was Wolf Eyes. I ended up being, you know, mm-hmm. whoever. You know, if it's, it was Wolf Eyes proper or was your your first bands, but uh, you know, I, I had no no desire whatsoever to do music, to listen to anything, any kind of interesting music, frankly. So, so you um, weren't at all really even aware of like relapse and and the 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 nineties noise stuff and and how where Merzbau had Scott gone and Masana had no. gone. You guys were no. sort of just out of it at at that time. Well the nineties totally. yeah the nineties I right after I moved to uh Los Angeles, um Merzbau played a show at Spaceland and um <clears throat> uh and actually that was the first um Man is the Bastard show. Oh cool he opened for them or they opened for him. Um, and you know, I, I, I came away from that show. I, I walked out early, very early in his set. I was super disappointed and not impressed. And I mean, people told me later is like, yeah, it wasn't his best night, but, um, it just kind of soured me to the whole, like, okay, that's all behind me. I, I can't listen to that shit anymore. I don't, I don't care about it. And I started to listen to more, I don't know, some black metal and, you know, uh, you know, space rock. I got involved with far flung. And so it was more about, you know, Hawkwind and, and kraut rock and, you know, those, those kind of things until early two thousands. Um, I think it was early two thousands. Uh, when did the, um, when did that Wolf Eyes, uh, sub pop record come out? Um, 2003. Three, yeah, and a coworker of mine said, "Hey, have you heard of these guys? They're from Michigan." I, I somehow was able to listen to some of it, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is like Harrington Ballroom, you know? This is this is this is some deep dank fucking, you know, some some Michigan underground shit, you know?" It's like, how did it get on Sub Pop? So that was the first that I knew that this was going on somewhere, uh, you know. That's so, cool. um, mm-hmm. but I didn't really explore it that deep. Um, and it wasn't until 2012 or 11, maybe that I started to think about um, noise again. I was like, Oh, it's not industrial anymore. It's called noise. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about when we played together, if I'm not mistaken, about 2011, 2012. Oh yeah. In Detroit. Yeah. Right. Would that be right? Yeah. I mean, definitely for me though. Cause that was, that was the near the but end when- of my time. When did you but... guys come to when did you guys come to LA? Um that, played Spaceland and I came down. We you came down and I was wearing an SPK shirt and you came up to me and you're like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> and then that is when we met. So that would have been like I the, we it's funny, we were going back on this today. Like, Time. what years was I doing that? And it's it's so funny because it's it, it's such a you know blur at this point, just like I said, memory just is was so crazy. So maybe ha- eight or nine had to have been about then. That's when mm-hmm. we were touring heavily, and, and that's when we would have probably done that. Yeah, so that's when we ended up meeting, and then yeah, we did play a show together. I I want to say it's around 2011, and there's <laughs> a someone that you end up working with was sort of 
a, a direct connection with us, and that would be Chip. And that mm. was someone that we were friends mm. with and and that you guys are friends with and worked with. So how did Chip come into the fold, and when did you guys start working with him? Go, Lon. Yeah, Chip was around forever. He was uh, he was like a 14-year-old kid or something when we first met him at the store. He liked uh, like noisy industrial music, and he, or, and he liked um, hip-hop. You know, he was a early, early, uh, rap guy. And, uh, he, he actually, uh, toured, he went to, uh, as roadie with us to, um, Pittsburgh on a show. And then later he, uh, he did some of his robots. He was making the, the robots by that point. Um, some of our, some of our shows with, with the last hunting lodge show, he did some robots on stage with that. Just really very crude. They just kind of moved slowly. Mm-hmm. But they looked cool. And then Scott's band Ultra Wipe, he I, he did some some stuff with you at that point too, right? Yeah, one show. It's one yeah. show, right? Yeah. Yeah, so then he moved to San Francisco, came back and uh you know, started hooking up with him and uh and hanging out uh and yeah, that was yeah, still still good friends with him. He's he's a great dude, he's and, and for anyone listening, Chip is this. He's this great guy. He was part of Survival Research Labs. Uh, GX yes. talked yep. about him. Ape in, technology. Yeah, absolutely. GX talked about him in one of the episodes we did with him. I believe he was part of a show in in the middle of nowhere where they were exploding things, and that to me just makes sense because mm-hmm. I think of Chip as liking to explode things oh, yeah. and making robots. Mm-hmm. So that's <laughs> yeah. a, and, and yeah. that's, that's my, you want my, a robot? You want to blow something up? Call hey, Chip. and that's just a, a, beauti- a, a beautiful thing. Chip, Chip is uh one of the greatest. So yeah, great guy. And, and that, but that was definitely how we ended up connecting. Cause we became really good friends with Chip. And then we ended up, he sort of facilitated the, the show we ended up doing. Uh, if I'm, if I'm, if my memory is, is correct. Uh, and that was, just a hell of a lot of fun. So where are you guys at now? I mean, have you, I, I, I actually didn't look, have you guys done shows since then? No, none. Just, just that show with the mocad with ape technology. Yeah. And so is that something that you're thinking about doing anymore? I mean, you know, this 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 episode is really fitting. You you guys are someone we've wanted to talk to for a while, and it just end up working out, especially with the reissue coming out. But on last week's year end episode, we had listeners and guests send in their list, and Harrington Ballroom was on multiple lists so of people's lists. favorites of the year. Wow. So it just is it is super fitting that there's this big, you know, people are really really excited right now. Like we said, 40th anniversary, and and Knox being a big part of that. Uh, as well as Deus, of course, reissuing Will, but Knox Mitchell being a big mm-hmm. part of putting your guys' stuff out, getting it out there to to the to tons of new kids. I, I was texting a, a, a kid today who's younger than all of us, and I was saying, "Oh, you, you know, we're talking to Honey Lodge. Oh, I can't believe it! I love them." You know, so he's getting it out to even younger people than you know than than before. Are you guys thinking about playing? Are you are you thinking about doing something again? What's what are you guys? Where are you guys at in twenty twenty two? Moving on to twenty twenty three. I, you know, once again, I'm always the guy fucking everything up for people, but the, there was a time in the last year where I thought pretty much for sure we would do, uh, do some shows around the 40th uh, anniversary because now Carla was back in the, in the fold. Uh, we hadn't heard from her in years and years. So we, you know, we didn't think we'd ever hear from, but hear from her, but then, um, Knox, uh, 
found her and, and we started, uh, talking to her all the time. And, and, uh, she was uh, into doing, doing the show. You know, we were, um, we were going to figure out how somehow how to do uh, some shows, uh, with trying to do that same set again. And, you know, as time goes by, I, I, I kind of soured on the idea because I'm listening to these things trying to think of how are we going to recreate this nowadays? And then it just seems to me that for myself, I'm not the person I was at 22 years old. I'm not, mm. I, I have no, no anger. I have no in, real enthusiasm uh, for that. Um, I, I, so I would just be, I heard an interview with David Yao recently talking about getting back, back together with Jesus Lizard uh, and doing shows and calling it recreation. I think he said a uh, reenactment. That's what he said. A reenactment. <laughs> so I, I totally get it. It's like, uh, you know, we would be, you know, I wouldn't write those songs if I had to, you put a gun to my head and I had to write songs today. I, those things were done by a, you know, 22, 23 year old person. Um, I, I start talking to Scott about, uh, how we would do this. And he, at the time, wasn't interested in doing metal percussion again, which he you know, was a lot of his, he, he did a lot on that album. Um, so it's just, to me, I just thought, well, we're not those people anymore. So now we're going to be doing this half-assed thing over top of that. I didn't want to further sully our reputation. I, the ape technology thing that we did, I, I don't think that was excellent. I think Scott could have could have done a good job because he never really left music totally. He was always had his foot in the door. But me, that was the first time I had done anything for forever. And I, I don't think it was totally successful. But I think going back to Harrington Ballroom, I don't know. Maybe it could be maybe it could be done well. I I have no confidence that uh that it would be. Yeah, I differ slightly. I I, I think it could be done and it, I don't think it needs to be done uh like note for note. Um much of that material was all on backing tape. So you're really just kind of doing the screams and hollers and metal percussion stuff on top. Um, but I don't know. It's, it, it, it would be cool, but if it wasn't cool, it would really be bad. We would regret it probably more than regret not doing it. Right, right, right. Understood. You know, but I will say, you know, we, the three of us, uh, saw Jesus Lizard on their most recent, I guess at this point it was probably 2017, 2018, when they did a couple shows uh, and they played Los Angeles. I've seen Jesus Lizard since the 90s. I grew up in Chicago. I saw him on, you know, early records. I saw him on their first reunion, saw him on their second reunion or recreation. How amazing was that last show? It was actually maybe the best I ever it was saw so them, good. including the 90s. <laughs> so it was one of those two where Tara and I, were, we were all kind of sitting in the back and I'm like, yeah, you know, got, we got beers or whatever. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to hang. We're just going to kind of hang in the back and watch the I show. It'll be great. My drink. Literally the first notes of then comes up, comes on. I go, Tara, hold that. And I just ran <laughs> up. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not hanging back. Like, yeah. and I was, it was just like, and he was just on first. So then so, I had to drink two drinks. So, so there is, it can be done. I will tell okay. you, but I, but I do understand what you're saying where it's yes. like, okay. you know, uh, you know, 
capturing that energy again can it be done it you don't want to sully the memory exactly yeah. so we well, obviously you totally know, get mike that. mike what i'll do is i'll call david <laughs> there you go and i'll have him front uh, a recreation there of Harrington Ballroom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I smell a winner. I think it's there you go. I will yes. be, we will be front and center. Uh, getting to just talk about the history. Like we said, it's been it's a really great year. 40 years. The Harrington Ballroom release has been on a lot of people's favorites of the year list. So make sure to pick that up as well as, I mean, I'm sure the Deus Will uh, LP is is around next time you see that at the store if you don't have that yet put it right in your cart for sure and like we said the shack uh the releases is really great too that was that's a that's a really cool one so definitely thanks to Knox for sure for Mm -hmm. yes really uh really digging in and 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 getting you guys out there to a whole new new generation of people and and getting like like we said with will and with a lot of stuff he's doing and with the harrington making it sound great you know that's the other thing like you guys said it's actually what we were hoping it was going to sound like and now here it is so really really cool guys thanks so much for taking the time to hang and talk with us this was really fun right on nice meeting you guys yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure oh, yeah thanks for having us on you've been listening to noise extra noise extra is brought to you by chondritic sound a home to noise artists for over 17 years by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noise extra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.